0: Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitude. It is 16th of June, my friends, and we are doing a long-awaited situation report on the Ukrainian war. Uh, Usually we start out like that. I welcome you to listen to the show, and Kirill starts depicting the situation on the ground of the theater of war, usually in the southeastern Ukraine, assessing uh, the general uh, situation and military strength uh, of the war parties. I throw a joke here and there, and we continue on this voyage, but uh, I thought that maybe there are people who are listening to us, and they are not aware of what's happening at all. Uh, Well, Why is there a war in the first place, what's the closest historical analogy of it all, and uh, who is responsible, and where we at RWA stand over this whole conflict, so let me make a serious recap, a historical dive in for newbies about the origins of this war, or at least how we picture it. Uh, Trigger warning, if you are a tanky, please fast forward, uh, because (laughs) we will talk about the times of the early 20th century for a bit. So, uh, before the February Revolution, Russia and Malorussia then name of uh, modern-day Ukraine, were living in peace and harmony. Relatively speaking, of course, because a lot of the locals were brave unruly men, Cossacks historically were trying to get the better of their Polish masters, and every, almost every major war that Russian Empire played some part in, almost always hit the current-day Ukraine the hardest. Uh, because of its uh, geographical position as an Eastern European deathmatch map. But uh, despite of it all, Russian and Mal-Russian and White Russian brothers lived in the triune bliss. Uh, so then, when empire started crumbling because of the many circumstances, World War I hit Russia's economy, there was war fatigue, Uh, Traitors infiltrated the seats of power, anarchist terrorists were killing officials, etc. Uh, In short, all of it led to the February Revolution, temporary government of Lvov and Kerensky and abdication of Tsar Nicholas II. Then the temporary government of traitors and weasels crumbled under the communists. Their October Revolution killed historical Russia for good then russia's badly scarred body was resurrected in a new form the red empire led by lunatics uh, spies and uh, idiots but of course some of them were very fine people Uh, the lunatics suffered of their inherent hatred of the great russian chauvinism as they called it so they dissected, dissected the body of russia in different parts and made some new republics one of those uh, was uh, USSR. US, uh, is it also USSR in English, I mean? Uh, I think, yes, uh, it's mostly abbreviated as uh, UKSSR. Okay, <laughs> you, <laughs> that's even worse. UKSSR, or Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, that had its own government uh, policies, uh, KGB, and later re- its own representation in the UN.
1: Although it has to be, it's important to mention here that at the moment of its creation, the Ukrainian Socialist uh, Soviet Republic did not include uh, large parts of historical Novorossiya, namely the donetsk Republic uh, and Crimea and Kharkiv and so on.
0: So, uh, by Soviet constitution, uh, republics had a right to leave the Soviet Union. And when USSR imploded, uh, they did just that. So, a lot of the new countries were born, but among them there was also a new baby country, a husk of a former self, a baby with uh, wrinkles, Russian Federation. It was uh, ravaged by the West in the 90s and uh, its own criminal elite, sold for scraps, looted, raped. In 2000s it slowly started getting back in town, just like the boys. Uh, meanwhile, Ukraine's sole purpose of existing independently was to join EU, or the West in general, which they physically were unable to do. EU did not want a uh, 40 million strong poor country in fears to strain their budget and then inadvertently to start in a war with Russia, uh, well, the US-UK axis of power wanted just that, so they started supporting Ukrainian opposition and hyping them up, providing serious media support and a bunch of promises. But got handed hand to Americans that Americans really know how to buy the deep. Uh, let's look at the, the, the history, they bought Manhattan for beets, they bought uh, Alaska for 2 cents for an acre, I think. And they also bought Ukraine for cookies and promises, that's really cheap. Uh, So, in late uh, 2013 or early 2014, I don't remember, they overthrew their democratically elected Yanukovych, that they elected uh, themselves, and and, uh, the new government was installed, which was explicitly anti-Russian. Uh, they were banning Russian language, uh, various Nazi collaborators were given a lot of awards and honored, uh, they were desecrating the memory of our mutual sacrifice in the great patriotic war against the Nazi Germany, and generally they were adamant at joining EU or NATO or whatever else they imagined themselves as heaven, just to piss off Russians and uh, to fulfill the fever dream of uh, becoming European, whatever that means. All in all, after success of Maidan, Russian Federation did not like it very much and uh, it seized Crimea, the home of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Uh, The Russian regions in the east uh, that were not part of the historical Ukraine or even UKSSR at first, uh, like Donetsk and Lugansk, did not like it either and started a revolt hoping that Russian army would help them to fend off against the new uh, Maidan fanatics that made a coup. A bunch of local miners with a few volunteers and soldiers of fortune from Russia uh, humiliated the weak FAU and captured a lot of ground, but there was only so much they could do without actual help from the Russian military. Alas, uh, Putin and company were reluctant to help, so the conflict very quickly became frozen. The Minsk agreement was signed, and most of the Donetsk region and uh, half of uh, Lugansk region was still under Ukrainian control. The rest uh, was controlled by newly formed People's Republics, uh, that were continuously bombed by Ukraine for 8 years to no avail, by their former, not comrades, but yeah. So yeah, 8 years of uh, bombing Donetsk uh, and other places, and seemingly nothing really promised us that this whole situation will change, but it did on February 24, something that no one expected really, but a lot of people would like to happen. Actually, another thing before we start on uh, describing what actually happened from Uh, February uh, 24 to June, I thought about interesting historical parallel. What do you think the closest uh, war in in Russian history that resembles the current conflict the most?
1: Mm -hmm. In Russian history, uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I guess it's really hard to say. I think maybe one of the Polish wars or the civil war, it's... uh, I'm actually really not sure. But the one historical war I would compare it to and have done so on some occasions is probably the Texan war for independence.
0: Well, yeah, uh, it makes sense. But uh, if we were to... Pick some Russian conflict because uh, to see if there are any similarities in the public, let's say that, and the public reaction to it. The Russian Turkish War of uh, 1877 to 78 was in a lot of ways similar because it also began not as successful as people would hope. Um, In fact, uh, Russian elites uh, did not want to start a war. There was an uprising against the Turks in the Balkans for several years prior to that, and Russian volunteers went to the Balkans uh, to General Chernyev to fight for the Slavic brothers. Uh, So the emperor did not really want to get involved in the conflict at first, but uh, the very situation when Orthodox Bulgarians uh, and Serbs were being destroyed and the Russian Tsar uh, that ruled the largest Orthodox country did not act, it uh, was uh, a very unpleasant situation, so he did act. And the Russian army uh, was not quite ready for war. Before the Russian-Turkish war, there was a bunch of uh, conflicts in Turkistan, on which we did an episode, um, how was it called?
1: I think it was one of the Based in Russia episodes. Yes,
0: yes, Based in Russia. The
1: line of Tashkent about right, General right. Chernev.
0: So yeah, check it out, uh, the land of Tashkent, great episode. In Turkestan, there was a special tactic of uh, Russian military because of uh, transparent uh, technological disparity between the two, uh, between the local Central Asians and Russians. They needed just uh, a few guns and a couple mortars and it was enough to successfully storm Central Asian settlements and scatter enemy detachments uh, a lot uh, larger. But in the Balkans they faced a full-fledged army of uh, almost an European model. The Turks were armed with the latest British guns and cannons, so uh, all of it was supplied by Britain. So, another parallel here. Uh, and uh, also, there were British instructors who trained the Turks. Also, <laughs> very similar. Uh, there was another problem that the uh, Russian army uh, suffered a lot of non-combat losses due to poor logistics and um, a lot of frost patients and uh, various diseases. So, I'm not sure if it's uh, true, I did not check carefully, but uh, I saw somewhere that British Queen Victoria said that if the Russians won this war she would take it as a personal insult and uh, the public reaction to it inside Russia was uh, there was basically two camps some uh, were volunteering some helped uh, the army uh, to collect uh, what they needed uh, but In other bougie salons, uh, they scolded the incompetent Tsar, because of whom decent people wouldn't go to Europe anymore. To reply to those uh, disdained people who decried about the war, Dostoevsky, in his diary of a writer, remarked, uh, they are now shouting in unison about the trading stagnation, about the stock market crisis, about the fall of ruble. But if these stockbrokers of ours were... So far sighted as to understand anything outside their sphere, then they would have guessed the, for themselves that if Russia had not started the current war, it would have uh, been much worse for us. In order for there to be any affairs, even stock exchanges, it is necessary that the nation must really live. That is a real living life and uh, fulfill its natural purpose and not be a galvanized corpse in the hands of stockbrokers. Also great quote, and I think it's very fitting to this day and age. And everyone knows what happened next. Despite of the hardships, uh, the Russian army overcame the resistance of the enemy, and despite the clumsiness of the state machine, uh, they we. Won. Uh, first, we won in heavy battles, then psychologically, the Turks ran. So the Russians uh, stood at the walls of Constantinople or Tsargrat. Uh, but unfortunately, there was now a bout of diplomacy in which um, all this progress uh, was in vain uh, because um, we were one step away from capturing Tsargrat. But instead of coming in control of the Bosphorus Straits, Russian Empire gained only Batumi, southern Bessarabia, and Kars. So it's a typical story in the history of Russia to be able to defeat the enemy militarily, but uh, not being able to uh, grasp the fruits of the victory and uh, drink them to the last jobs. So, what do you think? Is it similar in any way?
1: Yes, I guess the comparison is fair in some ways. Um... Yeah, and uh, I think I've uh, mentioned about uh, especially the role of General Chernyaev in the Balkans, which was similar to the role uh, Strelkov played in the early days of the Donbass conflict, uh, namely as a semi-official guy who's uh, running stuff that the government doesn't really approve of and uh, more or less forces uh, the capital to act.
0: Was there um, a time when Cherneyev just sat in the armchair and was black-pilled and shit? <laughs> uh, actually, that's pretty much how he
1: ended his life, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, uh, like any uh, historical comparison, it's more of a metaphor than analysis.
0: Sure. So. Okay, so now we can break down what happened in the current Russo-Ukrainian crisis from uh, 24 of February to the 1st of June and then for the most hardcore RW heads we will finally tell you what happened in our absence of our sea traps from uh, from, uh, the 1st of June to 16th of June. You know it's like a special episode for those who missed out on the show uh, and uh, on the beginning of the show and now we're doing a recap like previously on Ukrainian war. So (laughs) let's do that.
1: All right, Uh, so the war, I would actually start a bit earlier on February 17th, uh, which is when the Ukrainian army started uh, increasing its shelling of Donetsk. And uh, it reached pretty much 2014-2015 levels of uh, destruction in the city. Uh, Strikes against infrastructure, assassination attempts, um, sabotage teams... Uh, being sent behind the front lines, uh, which led to the Russian government formally recognizing the Donbas republics on February 22nd, uh, which is also when Putin held his uh, speech, his long speech where he basically recapped also the history of Ukraine and the history of uh, russia nato relations. which led uh, to the decision first to recognize the donbass republics as uh, independent sovereign states and not part of ukraine as they would have been under the minsk accords which were largely ignored um, by especially by the ukrainian side and then on five in the morning on february 24th the russian army began its assault on ukraine First came missile strikes. Uh, actually, quite few compared to maybe similar invasions by uh, first-rate armies. Um, if I remember correctly, the Russian army in the first four weeks um, of the war used less, fewer missile strikes than um, the American army did in two days in the gulf war
0: but yet there were a lot of faulty comparisons to the iraq war and a lot of uh, bad info about the destroyed anti-air that it's all gone like in two yes, days yes
1: in the first uh in the first hours or the first days of the war it seemed as if um the missile strikes were a lot more massive than they actually were Um, The Russian army did not strike barracks. The Russian uh, rocket forces did not strike um, Ukrainian military units uh, trying to preserve the lives of Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, There are many theories as to why. Uh, One of the main ones I think is that there was just bad intelligence about the ideological state of Ukrainian troops that they would all just uh, desert and change sides. Uh, which obviously didn't happen, uh, apart from the border guards, who I think most of the Ukrainian border guards laid down their arms and did not resist the Russian invasion. But yes, uh, the Russian army entered uh, Ukraine from four fronts at once, um, basically from the south, from Crimea, from Donbass, uh, from kharkiv Sumy, and from Belarus, uh, north of Chernobyl. Quickly capturing the Chernobyl nuclear power plant and driving on to Kiev. There was also an attack on Gostomel Airport in Kiev, uh, which was one of the most impressive, uh, I would say, military operations in modern uh, history, where Russian Dessentura, VDV uh, airborne troopers seized Gostomel Airport and held it for. Uh, Basically, one and a half days against everything the Ukrainian army threw at them, until they were they were able to link up with the Russian armed columns coming from uh,
0: Sumy. I'm afraid on the next whatever uh, day, because of that, they would be <laughs> <laughs> very drunk. These days. Yes, yes, sir, especially so. so.
1: So there are several theories as to what actually happened there, uh, one in which I too believe is that is that the plan A of the Russian army was to quickly enter Kiev, uh, have Zelensky surrender and install some vaguely pro-Russian guy, someone like Medvedchuk, some Yanukovych type person um, as new president and uh, fulfill finally the dream. Uh, which was made up by Russian political pundits in 2013-2014 of an um, anti-fascist, brotherly, neutral Ukraine. So that did not happen. Um, the Ukrainian state and army is, uh, pr- well, were and are still vehemently resisting. And thus uh, the Russian army pulled back. Uh, a month later, or one and a half months later, from uh, Kiev, uh, Chernigov, and Sumy, and uh, concentrated on the southern uh, flank, uh, namely uh, Kherson, Zaporozhye, and Donbass, of course. Uh, Donbass is especially relevant because the bulk of the Ukrainian army at the beginning of the war was concentrated there. Uh, For eight years the Ukrainian army has built up its defenses there, Uh, there are Extremely heavy lines of defense, um, basically mountains of concrete and steel with tunnels, pillboxes, bunkers, and that's why the Donbas front basically looks like World War One, uh, with positional and trench warfare and uh, immense artillery exchanges. And so on. The Russian army very quickly seized uh, Kherson and uh, large parts of uh, Zaporozhye, basically meeting little to no resistance, and entrenched themselves uh, north of the Dnieper River in Kherson Oblast and um, south of the Dnieper River in Zaporozhye, south of the city of Zaporozhye itself. They seized Berdyansk, uh, a port city on the Azov sea coast and started their advance on Mariupol. Mariupol is part of Donetsk Oblast and thus recognized by the Russian government to be part of the Donetsk People's Republic. So they attacked Mariupol from two sides. The Donetsk People's Militia came from uh, Donetsk themselves, uh, down south, Russian troops came from Taganrok and Rostov, and Russian troops also came from Berdyansk. And uh, those began the siege of Mariupol, where uh, around 15,000 Ukrainian troops were quickly surrounded. Uh, The city itself was cleared within a few weeks. And then the uh, large uh, amount of Ukrainian soldiers entrenched themselves in two factories, the Ilyich steel plant and the Azovstal steel plant. While the former fell too rather quickly The rest of the Ukrainian troops in Mariupol retreated to the Azov-style plant uh, beginning a very large international drama with appeals to the Pope, uh, the Oscar awards, um, uh, appeals to Angelina Jolie and whatever else.
0: Yeah, a plea for Angelina Jolie to adopt all those Azov guys. These are my 5000 Nazi children. (laughs) Look at them, aren't they adorable?
1: But in the end, uh, it uh, all didn't help, and uh, the infamous Azov regiment, uh, large parts of it, surrendered and are now all in Russian custody. And Mariupol was finally cleared. At the same time, there were advances in Kharkov oblast a half-siege maybe, uh, since the southwestern approaches were never fully encircled or cut off in Kharkiv, Uh, so basically the siege was only in the northeast. Um, Then the Russian troops pulled back from Kharkiv to more defensible positions. Uh, It's unclear whether they did that just because uh, their current positions are easier to defend or if it was some kind of plan to lure the Ukrainian troops out of Kharkiv, uh, because fighting in cities is never pretty for anyone and it's uh, way easier in the fields surrounding the city. At the same time, there were significant advances uh, in, in the eastern part of Kharkov Oblast, uh, fighting for Kupiansk, uh, which is the logistical center of the Russian advance in that part of the country, and down to Izum. Isium is uh, was also a very important strategical uh, point because it's a transportation hub and basically it links uh, Kharkov, Obost and Donbass. And uh, since it was clear from the beginning that the goal of the operation is to destroy Ukrainian forces in Donbass, it was absolutely necessary to take control of Izum, which happened after weeks of prolonged and very intense fighting and now the russian troops are advancing south from izum uh, in the direction of Slavyansk. russian troops have also advanced uh, on Slavyansk uh, through liman and uh, also through uh, severodonetsk and also popasna so basically they are coming at uh, the slaviansk matovsk bahmut agglomeration from all sides now uh, in the east Right. Um at the same time there were basically no successful Ukrainian counteroffensives uh, aside from uh, the Russian pullback around Kharkiv and of course the Russian uh, the Russians pulling out of Kiev, Chernigov, and Sumy oblast, but um, the fighting there seems to have really attracted the uh, Ukrainian operational command north very heavily, since we haven't really heard much of it since then. It seems to have stopped existing as a relevant strategic force.
0: Well, counter-attacks maybe not, but uh, we got to admit that um, because of the high proficiency of Ukrainian artillery, they inflicted a lot of losses to the Russian columns, especially early yes. on.
1: Yes, Ukrainian artillery is uh, probably the best part of the Ukrainian army, uh, most well-equipped, well-trained, well, uh, well, basically, they really uh, do know how to do their jobs. And uh, yes, the largest uh, Russian losses in the first part of the war were mostly due to Ukrainian artillery hitting Russian convoys, Russian supply convoys, and uh, also Russians barging into Kharkov in light vehicles, which uh, suggests that there was also either bad intelligence or there was some kind of... Um, behind-the-scenes talks going on between Kharkov and Russia about the surrender of the city. Uh, some people maybe remember the mayor of Kharkov, Derekhov. He was uh, walking around the bomb shelters and speaking to the citizens of Kharkov how important it is to reach an uh, agreement and understanding with the Russian army. And uh, basically, it seems like there was a plot to surrender the city, which was, however, thwarted by the Ukrainian side and uh, by direct involvement of the CIA, as the, the rumor goes. So who knows? But in any case, uh, yes, uh, the Russian army probably took the heaviest losses in Kharkiv and around Kiev in that uh, part of the war. Um, from my understanding, the highest uh, rate of casualties reached around 85 to 90 killed per day in that period of the war, but has been going down steadily since then, since the Russian army changed to uh, stopped doing the uh, light vehicles uh, going 200 miles behind the front lines thing and changed to its preferred doctrine, namely uh, the massive use of artillery.
0: Yeah, coincidentally the uh, heavy emphasis on artillery is also part of the Ukrainian military doctrine, but I think it's funny that uh, both Russians and Ukrainians at the beginning were LARPing as if uh, no, we changed our military doctrine, we are now extremely mobile and uh, (laughs) we are everywhere. And now it's back to normal.
1: Right. um, So the Russian uh, strike into Kiev and Sumy, whether it was a feint or a strategic defeat, doesn't really matter um, in the big picture, because it achieved a very significant goal, namely it stopped uh, the Ukrainians throwing more bodies at Donbass. Still, the Russian army is... um, has basically no numerical superiority and uh, that's why the advances are so slow because there is no other way uh, for them to overwhelm the Ukrainian defenses aside from uh, slowly grinding them down with artillery and then uh, surrounding them in the small cauldrons that uh, the Ukrainian army has uh, a tradition of getting into.
0: Let's recall what numbers are we talking about at the beginning of the war?
1: Well, the Ukrainian army was around uh, 250 to 300,000 strong in, and also a uh, very hard to estimate number of paramilitary formations, parts of the National Guard, uh, police units uh, that were um, or still are um, under the command of the Ministry of the Interior and so on and so on. So I think we can largely speak about around 300,000 or up to half a million with uh, mobilization. And um, the Russian invasion force numbered probably around 180,000. But I don't think that uh, all of them were ever uh, being used at once, as the Russian army was um, strong on rotation. It was very important to have uh, the ability to rotate troops, which the Ukrainian army doesn't have for strategic reasons. Uh so I don't think that more than 150,000 maybe uh Russian troops were involved uh at any one moment in Ukraine. Right now probably up to 200 to 220,000. So the Russians are advancing against a numerically superior enemy which uh is uh, of course a very difficult thing to do as a uh, The traditional rule of thumb says that you need to be three times as numerous uh, to advance against fortifications, but uh, that can of course be um, neutralized by the heavy use of artillery and air superiority. Air superiority is another question, um, since the Ukrainians do have a lot of anti-air and this is basically the first conflict in modern military history where we see a large air force up against uh, serious air defenses Uh, we just haven't seen that uh, anywhere else except like uh, the americans um, against uh, 60 year old soviet uh, anti-air guns in iraq or something which still managed to shoot a few uh, jets down, by the way. So the Russian uh, aviation is mostly used only uh, near the front lines uh, for close air support, since the Ukrainians have limitless amounts of manpads provided by the West and also uh, not many S-300 systems left. Most of them have been destroyed by missile strikes or artillery or airstrikes. But they still do have some S 300 capabilities and also a shit ton of books. Um, Yeah. Which makes it difficult for the uh, Russian Air Force to uh, be used as much as it could be. But of course uh, air force, uh, air power was never a large uh, part of Russian military doctrine since Russian military doctrine built on Soviet military doctrine which was built around war against NATO and it was kind of uh, implicit that NATO would have air superiority so instead the Soviet bloc um, put all its skill points into air defense and uh, now of course uh, russia is suffering for that
0: i think the why uh, the west is so convinced that um, the land lease and helping ukraine with weapons will solve uh, the conflict and uh, bring them victory because uh, they generally do not re- respect the artillery as much and they think that well if ukraine has a million of switchblades kamikaze drones that uh, then they would just blow up every single piece of uh, russian artillery and win the war and uh, there there are two uh, parties of the uh, drone bulls and uh, drone bears or something like that do you think this conflict uh, shed uh, any light on the use of drones and it's their importance
1: Uh, yes it's This conflict has shown that combat drones are basically useless against any military force that has uh, serious air defenses as the much um, talked about Bayraktar drones, the Turkish ones, which were so effective when used by Azerbaijan against Armenia, uh, turned out to be useless against the Russian army. And at the same time, it uh, this conflict highlights the importance of reconnaissance drones reconnaissance drones uh, which are super important as um, basically they provide a whole new dimension to uh, the military conflict as uh, the enemy can see what the other side is doing all the time and you have to match these capabilities or you will be at a significant disadvantage
0: yeah and russia has a very Uh, not satisfactory amount of such drones, uh, like Orlan's. Is actually Orlan Russian-built drone any better than MAV? Significantly.
1: Uh, Yes, of course, the Orlan is larger and can fly higher, and uh, with this gasoline engine it can stay in the air a lot longer than a cheap Mavic drone, but of course Uh, since uh, those serious large uh, surveillance drones are in short supply on both sides. uh, The Mavic, the DJI Mavic has become sort of a symbol of this war as it's basically needed at absolutely every level down to like infantry squads which need several of them to be able to uh, effectively engage the enemy. And there has been a lot of donations and crowdfunding on both sides to get as many uh, cheap civilian drones as possible into the armies. Um, It was just a few days ago that the Russian government more or less officially admitted that it was a mistake uh, not to provide the army with enough uh, small surveillance drones and they are probably going to try to rectify it as uh, ASAP.
0: The good thing about the war is that it uh, teaches uh, important lessons.
1: Yes, yes. Well, that's uh, generally a historical constant that uh, any significant advances in uh, industry and science uh, are always uh, the result of wars. Uh, Just think about the Cold War, how the whole space program and uh, lasers and whatnot, uh, it all came out of the military uh, arms race.
0: Yes, so where we at at the recap of the war?
1: oh uh, right almost there uh, i think yeah. almost i think we, yes we were uh at the moment where it became a positional warfare and uh, there were a few very significant breakthroughs at the fortifications the ukrainians built up over eight years um, the first one was Volnavache, uh which is located approximately between donetsk and mariupol um, this was the first large, uh, significant, prolonged battle of the war, I believe, uh, in which the Donetsk People's Militia, with air, air and artillery support from the Russian Armed Forces, cleared Volnavache and continued its advance to Mariupol. Uh, there were several other of these strong points that were already broken. The most significant uh, one uh, was the first Rubezhne, I think, uh, because it cleared... Um, the pass for advance and uh, the most important one was Papasne. Popasnaia was a Ukrainian or is a, a city that was built into a fortress by the Ukrainians who basically every single building uh, being somehow part of the defenses through tunnels uh, that basically connect all the buildings and uh, trenches and uh, bunkers and so on, and it took uh, over two months uh, to crack open the defenses at Popasnaya, which then led to uh, what Russian military bloggers have called the flower of Popasnaya, namely advances in all directions from Popasnaya. It broke open the floodgates, so to speak, um, and has led to the precarious situation that the Ukrainian forces in Donbass now
0: find themselves in. An idea for minecrafters to uh, create a map of Papasnaya. With <laughs> tunnels, with lava, with <laughs> all that stuff.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, since then we've had several failed Ukrainian counter-offensives uh, where they took extreme losses in Kherson Oblast and also in Kharkov Oblast. Uh, right now, yeah, I think we can jump to what's happening right now. Um so right now the Russian forces are advancing again in Kharkov-Obris to retake the positions uh, they left uh, earlier. Advances are reported at Stary Saltov. Basically, the Russians are regaining some of the the line of contact that was uh, before the pullback. And the Ukrainians seem to be taking very heavy losses. Uh, Zelensky himself admitted as much. Right now they are advancing on Stary Saltov and also in the direction of Ruske Zavraya so uh, i guess we'll see what comes of that um so much for the Kharkov front there is still fighting around uh Bawam. the ukrainians are supposedly preparing an attack on Bawakle, uh which is north of Izum, northwest of Izum. and uh, to strike into the rear of the advancing uh, Izum group basically at the same time they're still fighting in uh, what is called what the soldiers called Sherwood Forest, um, a large forest area west of Izum, in which a lot of Ukrainian soldiers are still there trying to uh, cross the Seversky Donetsk River, um, which is uh, on the western side of the forest, um, but so far unsuccessfully. <coughs> At the same time, Russians are now advancing, uh, uh, again have taken Doginke and also Dalina, uh, Dalina is um, almost part of the Slavyansk uh, agglomeration. It's on the M3 highway that leads directly into Slavyansk. And it's basically one of the prerequisites for a successful uh, advance on Slavyansk. At the same time, Russians have taken Svetagorsk which is uh, a city on the north bank of the Siversky Donets River. The Siversky Donets River has um, Well it's a very problematic river because as we spoke about a bit earlier uh, due to drones and satellites and so on it's basically impossible to do something without the enemy seeing what you're doing and for this reason river crossings are extremely difficult and there are a couple failed uh, river crossings by the Russian army and uh, also by the Ukrainian army because uh, they just have to cross the Sevorsky Donetsk River to maneuver effectively which is super problematic in, uh, when you have like precision-guided artillery and also drone surveillance. In any case, the Russians have crossed the Sevorsky Donetsk uh, south of Svetogorsk and are controlling the towns of Tatjanovka and Priszyb, uh, constantly expanding the bridgehead, and supposedly also Bagarodichne, which is also on the south bank of the Sevorsky Donetsk River and on the... C5 highway, which also leads to the M3 highway to um, Slavyansk. The other side of the advance on Slavyansk is around Liman, where Russian troops have uh, captured uh, Liman itself and Yampel, and basically the whole north bank of the Siverskyi Donets River, and are, uh, according to the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, uh, regrouping and gathering forces for an assault on rai
0: The Heaven Town
1: which is on the other side of the Donetsk and uh, basically a suburb of Slavyansk and also absolutely necessary to capture for an attack on Sloviansk. Uh, further to the east, uh, fighting is still going on in the Severodonetsk-Lisychansk agglomeration. Um, Severodonetsk is uh, mostly under Russian control, up to 70% or 80% of the city and Ukrainians are entrenched uh, in a kind of uh, Azov style 2 scenario where they have um, entrenched in the azot chemical plant uh, supposedly up to several thousand including um, a lot of foreign fighters we have seen video evidence um, i think uh, yeah of uh, english-speaking fighters there and also significant amounts of the georgian legion so that is still going on, and afterwards there will be fighting for Lysychansk, uh, which is kind of the sister city of uh, Severodonetsk. It's uh, more or less one singular agglomeration divided by the Severodonetsk River. I, however, don't think that uh, the Russian army is going to cross the uh, Donets to attack Lysychansk and instead is going to attack Lysychansk further to the south. Further to the south, we have uh, the fortress area, the fortified area of Zawatoye and Gorske, which are also some of the heaviest defenses in this region. But they are slowly being ground down. Russians have uh, supposedly entered uh, Zawatoye from the south and are trying to cut off um, the line. They have taken Vrubovka, which uh, is uh, basically cutting uh, the bakhmut lysychansk highway at Beristavoye, which is a bit further to the west, and also entering Vrubovka, which uh, cuts off uh, Zolotoye from uh, supply from Nikolaevka, which is next to Rhaigradok. I have posted a map of this whole thing a few days ago, so uh, you can look that up to get a bit of a clearer picture of what's happening there. Um, At the same time, there are also advances in Tashkovka, uh, which uh, also leads to to the P-66 highway, which leads directly to the south of Lysychansk. So, what I think we are going to see is uh, a three-fold attack on Lysychansk from Vrubovka and Tashkovka. Possibly after the destruction of uh, the Zolotoye Fortified District, but maybe they'll be just surrounded and continue the advance. Uh, it's hard to say. But in any case, that's what's happening right now. Um, I also believe that um, in the near future, the Ukrainian army will probably abandon Bakhmut or Artyomovsk. Um, and retreat to a new line of defense that will basically uh, be like Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, Družhovka, Konstantinovka and uh, New York at its southern flank. Uh, it's basically a kind of banana or turd, however you want to look at it, and a uh, uh, heavily urbanized, uh, very defensible area that will probably become something of a last stand for the Ukrainian army in Donbass. It's hard to say how long this will take, it could be several weeks, it could be several months, um, it depends on a lot of factors. At the same time, there has been some activization, uh in the southern uh, France, uh, in Zaporoviye, in Kherson, um, especially in Kherson, uh, the Russian army has um, beaten back uh, several failed Ukrainian counter-offensives and also uh, taken control of the Kinburn Peninsula uh, in the Dnieperbuk estuary south of Achakov, um, including the Bioberezhde Svetoslava National Park, and uh, destroyed the Ukrainian patrol boats that were uh, harassing Russian troops from there. So basically everything uh, opposite of Achakov is now under Russian control as well. So yes, uh, I think uh, that is what the front lines uh, look like right now. Um, there are going to be changes in the near future, and uh, yeah.
0: You can immediately tell that the Russian side is winning when all those defeated Telegram channels suddenly fell silent. We will discuss uh, the international reaction to the war and. how it influenced, how the war influenced uh, the West. A lot of uh, people are saying that there is a supposed shift to the right wing in the West. Uh, For one, uh, Johnny Depp won his court case. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and uh, we all heard about the white, uh, blue-eyed Ukrainian refugees that are good. Uh, We all heard of... uh, Uh, Well, Germany is uh, starting to build up its army. Well, a lot of stuff is happening that was deemed impossible uh, before. So what do you think about the right shift? Is it happening? Well,
1: I wouldn't necessarily call it a right-wing shift. I don't think that ideology is a very useful um, category to describe what is happening. Um, It's mostly just America tightening control over Europe and uh, letting them do even less than they uh, independently than they were doing before. Um, I mean, the whole uh, Germany military build-up thing is exactly the same thing that already happened in, like, the 60s. Mm -hmm. The exact same discussions about uh, German militarism and jokes and so on. Though, of course, back then it was less of a joke since World War II was not that long ago. And aside from that, basically you just have... uh, Western, left, liberal journalists running interference for, like, uh, Azov uh, regiment and so on, which is, of course, funny to watch uh, in its contradictions, but uh, I think I saw some pics of, um, like, Trump supporters running around in pickups with uh, Z written on it, that was kind of funny. Mm. Um, So, yeah. yeah. Like
0: uh, letters,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah so i don't think that really uh, ideology is a useful way of looking at what's happening it's geopolitics and uh, it's largely independent of um, ideology because you have like antifa in the west supporting neo nazis in ukraine like how does that fit into uh, any kind of ideological paradigm
0: Yes, and uh, Britain especially seems uh, very desperate, maybe because because much of its uh, economy lies in the financial sector, and it can blow up any time now. I mean, the Brits
1: are kind of playing their own game, right? Um, Right. uh, I guess my personal guess is that they were hoping that the Americans would kind of uh, pull back from the whole region of Eastern Europe. And uh, the Brits could uh, kind of jump in as their imperial overlords. They already have this uh, uh, little toy entente uh, with um, the triple alliance with like Poland and Ukraine. Uh, The Baltic states are also all very pro-British. And I guess it's uh, all kind of the old Intermarium game. Um, Just trying this buffer zone between the West and the East. And, uh, yeah, I guess they're just trying to expand the sphere of influence. And uh, it's a way of influencing Europe or the European Union without being part of it. It's quite an interesting strategy. Of course, it's uh, not going to work out, but uh, it's a nice attempt, I guess.
0: Well, if... uh intermarium is to commence in some form or or another uh, then yeah it's uh, much weaker economically than western europe but uh, they will be very battle-hardened and actually can conquer western europe (laughs) if they want (laughs)
1: yeah Uh, it is like aristovich said yesterday (laughs) did you see that uh,
0: one no no
1: Um, basically aristovich he he was in his stream with mark fagan um, and he said something like, like, "It's of course never gonna happen, but 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 let's imagine if Putin actually wins, and uh, then you have the one and a half million strong Russian army, and also the half million strong Ukrainian army, and like uh, it's a very strong army, and if they, and like uh, the the." Toy armies, Spokeshnei Army in uh, Europe, they Mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to beat uh, Russian-Ukrainian alliance and they would just conquer all of Europe. I I thought that was very funny.
0: Well, I think uh, there is some truth in it because uh, European Union certainly does not uh, this war continue any longer. It's hurting uh, you uh, a lot. Uh, And for Britain, it's... Uh, The opposite, Uh, they would benefit from the eternal Russian-Ukrainian war. And that's why they supply Ukrainians with just enough uh, of needed tech. Not too much, not too little, but just enough to...
1: I mean, the Brits can't supply more than they already are supplying. It's uh, kind of impossible.
0: But Americans certainly... Uh, do not go overboard. Actually, people were predicting some large changes uh, because of the land list, but uh, I'm not seeing uh, some yeah, extreme change.
1: Well, basically yeah. what they were talking about was that the Ukrainians would be building up a huge army in western Ukraine with freshly trained reserves, armed with all the new western tech, but we really don't see any of that. We see that all the western tech is going directly to the front lines. Like they are mm-hmm. already using uh, French uh, artillery to fire at Donetsk. Um, I really don't see any of um, like the buildup of a huge Western army. It's uh, they uh, as soon as the stuff arrives, uh, in case it isn't destroyed by missile strikes, it goes directly to the front lines. So I yeah. see very little chance that there will be some kind of uh, Ukrainian army, new Ukrainian army in the West. And well, yeah.
0: First, you need people for that, Mm -hmm. and uh, let's talk about the losses, because uh, Ukrainians ignored uh, its own losses for uh, more than three months. I have not seen any mention of that. But now they're they're starting to talk about it. Veristovich said that it was uh, 10,000 killed in action. Uh, Zelensky said that it's uh, from 60 to 100 a day.
1: Yeah, it's, it was actually quite interesting. Like in the span of, I think, 10 days or two weeks or so, um, these numbers got thrown out. Uh, that first, Delensky said 6,200. Then the Ministry of Defense said around 100 a day. Then um, uh, presidential advisor, Podalak, Podalak, said it was mm. uh, 100 to 200. And now we see numbers floating around that say 200 to 300 a day. Um, yeah,
0: it's... Uh, and actually, what uh, pushed them to admit it? Because uh, before that, they were never it at all. Uh, that's interesting. It's like a decree from
1: yeah. Well, ups Well, we've seen a whole narrative shift also in yeah. the Western portrayal of the war. They're suddenly talking about how um, Ukraine is actually like losing and they don't have the artillery, they don't have the military vehicles to launch any offensives. Uh, Zelensky is admitting that uh, they are that uh, like he went from saying how the ukrainian army is 700,000 strong which is at least three times larger than russian uh, troops in ukraine to saying that they don't have enough military vehicles to launch any kind of offensive it sounds like they have to officially confront reality a bit to have a justification for why they need more weapons deliveries from the West. I think yeah. they, are, they are basically just begging for weapons uh, even more. And uh, it's kind of doesn't go very well if you claim to be winning and also that uh, all Western countries must empty their stocks to arm you. So uh, it has to be one or the other. And yeah, especially regarding the casualties, I think there is just a lot of... Uh, talk of course all those soldiers who die they have relatives they have friends and um, people are wondering and the ukrainian government hasn't been doing a very good job at informing families of the fate of soldiers um just recently i saw a facebook post where a woman was uh, looking for her nephew uh, because she hadn't heard from him in in like two and a half months and uh, he was actually in um, in the in a russian telegram channel uh, that shows ukrainian prisoners of war and uh, it was very easy to find him by name but uh, i guess some middle-aged lady from western ukraine wouldn't think of that and the ukrainian government hasn't told her anything Uh, so this all doesn't look very good because many of the dead aren't reported dead if you remember a few weeks ago, or so, um, Zelensky is uh, signed off on a change in procedure that basically that would only be uh, confirmed dead if confirmed by a military doctor or something like that, and otherwise they'd be missing in action. And uh, Ukrainians have quite a lot of these uh, missing in action that were never identified. They are also refusing to pick up their debt, as many people noted on the Russian side. Um, I don't know what the, the reason is, if they're just trying to hide uh, the casualties, or if they don't want to pay the families, uh, or if it's both.
0: It's. It, it reminds me of the Gulag Archipelago yes, by yes. because uh, when someone escaped the labor camp uh, and froze to death in Taiga, uh, the guards would have to either carry the body but the frozen body is very uh, heavy so they would need uh, the standard procedure was to cut off his uh, head and right arm for identification only then he would be pronounced dead so it's kind of like that Mm -hmm. Uh, in turkey in the hammam massage parlor that i visited uh, no happy endings, as uh, a normal <laughs> one. Uh, there was a Russian lady. Well, not really Russian, but Ukrainian slash Turkmen uh, that spoke Russian. Uh, she lives uh, in Turkey for 12 years, and um, she has a nephew in Ukraine, and he's a soldier. And she s- hasn't heard from him in uh, a couple of months, also. Mm-hmm. So, and she's worried. She did a uh, pretty good massage and did not try to uh, twist my head or something like that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Ukrainians don't like to count their people in general. But uh, Russian uh, MOD stopped counting the l- Russian losses also. They uh, the s- last uh, number was uh, uh, 1,500, right? Something. Mm, something no, ones. I
1: think the last no? uh, one was... Uh or I don't really remember. Well, but yeah, it's it a while ago. ago. It's a while yeah. ago when they provided official numbers. Yes. Um, so let's speculate. Uh, well. Yeah. Well. I, well, my guess is. Um, I mean, I had uh, actually from a private source. I got in late April, I think, or May. In May, in May, I got uh, an internal. M.O.D. number from Russia, it was around 3,500 killed in action back then. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Not including the uh, Donbass No, 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 forces.
1: no, no, just uh, um, just Russia. Um, just, uh, yeah, armed forces and Roskvordia. It was in May, you said? Yes, yes, I think it was in May or late April. I'm not, com- not completely sure. But I would estimate Russian uh, combat losses right now to be between five and 6,000 killed in action. That would be my estimate. I think uh, the Russian BBC or so has uh, uh, recently published a number of confirmed uh, losses they know about Russia and it was also around 3- three, three 3,500. Uh, so that is like the lower bound, but I do know for a fact that by now it's higher, since it was 3,500 um, over months ago. And, uh, right, so I would uh, put a number between five and 6,000 killed in action for Russian Armed Forces and Rosguardia. And probably about the same for the Donbass Republics. Uh, the DPR has uh, published um, numbers. Uh, according to them, they had um, overall 2,000 killed, and um, around 1,000 in the Lugansk People's Republic. So that comes to 3,000, but I think it's more in reality. As, so it's uh, at least
0: 10,000 uh, combined. So the yes, yes, at GPR, least. LPR yes. LPR, Russia. It's probably Rosguardia. 10 to
1: 12. It's probably between 10 and 12. Yeah. I would I would
0: estimate. It's amazing how Ukrainians, uh, when they mention their own losses, they have a correct number of Russian losses, like Russian combined losses, uh, and they claim it. It is uh, the losses of FAU. It would be very easy, right, if they would have a correct number for Russia and Ukraine and just uh, switch them. And uh, we could uh, switch them back and have correct numbers. But I think uh, the <laughs> losses of FAU are higher than 35,000. Yeah,
1: by now it's probably closer to 40, maybe even more. It's, it's really hard to estimate, but um, I... One
0: to, four, uh, 1 to 4 ratio, I think, is around that.
1: Yeah. Maybe one to three but yeah. Uh. I think I I think Ukrainian losses uh killed in action are probably between 35 and 40,000 right now, maybe more. I I'm it's super hard to estimate. Um especially because a lot of the losses are also occurring in um like the rear from missile strikes on barracks where you have like 300, 400 people die at once and they never admit this. Um So, yeah, very hard to estimate. What I find um, troubling is that the Ukrainians, give when they give numbers, they have something like, like they say, 100 dead a day and 600 wounded a day. And Mm -hmm. the 1 to 6 ratio is not very typical of what we've seen from the Ukrainian military so far.
0: mm -hmm. Um, It's 1 to 4, right?
1: I think the Americans had the 1 to 8 ratio in Iraq. But, um, and typical uh, is assumed like one to three in peer wars, but mm-hmm. I don't even think it's one to three for the Ukrainians uh, since in the last couple of months, especially most of the Ukrainian losses have been from like missile strikes and heavy artillery and uh, toss, uh, which don't leave many wounded survivors really. So it's probably closer to parity. And when they say like 100 dead and 600 wounded a day, I think the absolute number of 700 casualties a day is probably close to reality. But the proportions are very different and I think it's probably closer to 300 killed and 400 wounded a day.
0: Um, Do you believe there are 700,000 number of FAU in total?
1: Uh, Maybe on paper, maybe on paper, but uh, never in reality. It's probably much less. They have a lot of deserters, uh, a lot of people who don't show up for military service, a lot of people who just run away or pay someone uh, not to serve. Um, And uh, I also don't believe that they have the ability to mobilize that many people. Right now, it's uh, I don't want to give estimates on how many people they have in the field because that's borderline impossible. But I do believe it's way less than 700,000. From what I understand, in Donbas, um, the ratio of uh, Russian to Ukrainian troops is um, more or less one to one in manpower. Um, so Russians have to advance. Uh, against an enemy forces the same size or even larger um, which is also one of the reasons why uh, progress is rather slow Um, and they have to make all these small cauldrons instead of large cauldrons because for a large cauldron you need a lot more manpower than uh, the Russian armed forces have available right now in Ukraine or had available since the start of the war it's still like you have to uh, when you compare this stuff you have to understand that it's um A country in total war mode uh, was on its sixth wave of mobilization against uh, what is mostly two peacetime military districts and some volunteers. Intensity of uh, the mobilization or military preparation, military effect of the war on uh, society is not really comparable in any case. Um, like they are still super strict with who they let in the army in Russia. So a lot of people just go through the volunteer uh, program in Gudermes in Chechnya, where they can sign numbers for volunteers.
0: Yeah, in Turkey I saw maybe five separate Ukrainian women, but no men. So Mm. they are not being let out. uh, Yeah, it's
1: currently around uh, $10,000 to leave Ukraine as no, a of attack. Yeah. Man hefty sum. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Uh, well, yeah, the Ukrainian women did not attack me either. So, uh, speaking of Aristovich, um, I decided to read some of his stuff because he's conveniently writing it in Russian and his uh, Telegram channel. Um, and uh, I will show you the depth uh, of thought of the main Ukrainian ideologue. The right hand of Zelensky. Uh, It's very interesting because um, in in Russia there are are a lot of such writers, uh, and they rarely hold uh, serious positions of power. And also the uh, way he writes is uh, hilarious. It's very entertaining. It looks uh, reads like a fanfic, uh, like a Warhammer fanfic, and yeah, because. Ukraine is a less literary society He is able to impress them With uh, what he writes about And how So uh, l- let's check if uh, his text Will impress you <clears throat> Alright uh-huh. The post is called A little Mifa design uh, Alright uh, <laughs> It's becoming commonplace To call uh, the Russians Horde But first of all It will be insult to the horde. The evil that has fallen upon us is much more ancient and pitch black. It has uh, several characteristics that are important to know. This is a cult of death. It lives and feeds on the deaths of people and animals. This is worse than a cult of death. <laughs> I like the way he writes. Well, uh, Russians are horde. Well, they're worse, worse, than horde. They are a cult of death. Well, they're worse than than a cult of death. <laughs> In such a childish way. Uh, no, you are fool. Uh, you're worse than a fool. Uh, okay, they're worse than a cult of death. It is not just a cult of death. It is a cult of the most terrible death agonies such as the, those that were in, the, in Bucha, as we saw in Bucha, when people were killed slowly, uh, voluptuously, torturers were enjoying themselves in front of other people. That's what uh, the priests of the, this cult do. This cult came out of the ancient swampy forest around Moscow, which practiced uh, the cult of severe torment of victims and cannibalism. Uh, This cult is poisonous, it's invisible, at the level of barely uh, visible vapors, it creeps into the souls of people and uh, captivates them, uh, turning them into primitive beasts, uh, the rotten terrible spectrum of the primitive. Uh, The main distributor of this cult is Russian state TV, so uh, this cult is ancient. It arose in the swampy areas of Moscow for a thousand of years, and it came out from Russian state TV channels. That's why the broadcasting of Russian TV must be stopped at any cost. Uh, A characteristic feature of this cult is that it does not care uh, whose suffering it enjoys. It rejoices in its own deaths too, no less than others, hence the absolutely cannibalistic attitude towards its own soldiers. Well, there are some uh, features of the Horde in the cult uh, the ability for military organization and expansion, and desire for expansion. They also uh, took something from Europe, that civilized clothes uh, that they like to put on so much, but the cult itself, its essence uh, is uh, very visible. Only we, Poles and Anglo-Saxons. Can stop this cult. <laughs> this is an interesting uh, Freudian slip, right? <laughs> Only we, meaning, I don't know who, who is we? The Georgian uh, Jews? <laughs> uh, all right, or, or okay, Ukrainians, Pol- Poles, and Anglo Saxons. So naturally, Aristovich is in the pockets uh, of uh, British intelligence because he doesn't even mention the Europeans. Or uh, the Americans. Yeah. Or, oh yeah, Anglo Saxons, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. We beca- because our main idea is will light and freedom, uh, uh, well Ukrainian idea main ideas will light and freedom. Uh, the poles will help us because this swamp swamp scum is very known to them. They have been dealing for a long time with uh, this cult back to pre-Christian times, and brackets see the corresponding characters in Sapkowski. What? Sapkowski.
1: I actually oh. like the Sapkowsky reference. I, um, I have uh, used it at times to uh, describe parts of the Ukrainian ideology. Um, first of all, I find it very interesting how incredibly racist the Ukrainians are towards Finns. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it's, it's swarms
0: it's, come. It's about yes, Finns. Yes,
1: yeah, yes. Because uh, like the population of, it's one of their main arguments of, of Ukrainians. Where like, uh, of course, it's complete bullshit, but. Um,
0: well, it also uh, shows us that they don't actually hate Russians that are, like, uh, they are, like... <laughs> no, no, they Bluma, are the real they're,
1: Russians. They're the yeah, they are race. the real Russians, and... Uh, and we're just Finno-Ugric, uh, Baltic, Mordovian uh, scum, Mongols. basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's very interesting how incredibly racist they are, uh, like, against... Like, they're I mean, allies.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Oh, I guess it's more funny how the Finns uh, support the Ukrainians uh, despite the main Ukrainian argument for why Russians are subhuman is that they have some Finnic blood. But uh, nevertheless, uh, what's uh, most interesting here is how much of this is uh, projection. It's like very, very pure projection. If we go a bit off the deep end here um, then and really enter the realm of Ukrainian modern ukrainian national mythology um which which i think is best expressed by stuff like the um, institute of national memory they have which is an official government sanctioned um uh, basically a government agency that decides what ukrainian culture is and history um and the and even school textbooks and so on basically the ukrainian national mythology is that ukrainians have existed more or less forever And they derive uh, their um, nationhood, their autochtonic nationhood from the Tripolje culture, the Cucuteni-Tripolje culture, which was a Neolithic um, archaeological culture in, well, parts of uh, Ukraine, um, nowadays uh, Romania, Moldova and so on, and um, this was uh, like a Neolithic culture uh, with all the attributes of uh, European Neolithic cultures, uh, like the longhouse, agrarianism, all those human sacrifices, matriarchy, cannibalism, like that is uh, what Neolithic European culture was all about. Um, as you, for example, is shown in the great uh, documentary featuring um, Antonio Banderas, uh, the 13th warrior. Um, it shows a great remnant of the old European culture, the new yeah. European culture.
0: But by that logic, uh, the Eastern Ukraine is part of Yamnaya culture.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, the Tripoli culture was destroyed by the Yamnaya culture and by the Indo Europeans. And uh, with,
0: uh, literally, Novorossiya. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: and just technically, um, like Ukraine is under Russian occupation since like three thousand before Christ. <laughs> mm, but I see. Yeah. But in any case, yes. I also like the Sapkowski reference because um, if you remember that uh, propaganda clip the Ukrainians made with the woman yes. who slices a Russian soldier's throat. And she is dressed like a noon race from The Witcher. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what Sobkovsky was trying to show this uh, Ktonic, the swamp, the swampy part of Slavic uh, Slavic culture is uh, exactly what the Ukrainians try to emphasize. And like this dual female culture, uh, which you can also see in like the uh, crowns in The Witcher. Uh, also one of the best scenes in the game, of course. Um, but I think uh, this is uh, a lot uh, like what the deep uh, ps- the deep psychology of modern Ukrainian nationalism is like. This two-faced female character because uh, Ukraine is always depicted female uh, yes. uh, in its national propaganda. And it's unironically, unironically best shown in this image of the... Uh, ladies of the woods uh, from the Witcher 3 uh, because at like where you have these two pictures of them the first is like those just simple pretty alluring women in the painting but in reality they are these horrific monsters who engage in like mutilation and cannibalism and would like make Lovecraft run away and uh, so on and uh, i think uh, if you were to look at it from like a jungian point of view of uh, psychological archetypes and so on then this is exactly what aristovich is talking about the cult of death which also has in my opinion uh, survived in some ways in what is um the general military culture of ukraine which is derived from the bandera uh, insurgents who were whose whole modus operandi was hiding in the woods and like assassinating teachers from time to time? And uh, yeah, Ukrainian nationalism is much closer to a cult of death than any Russian patriotism is. And uh, as very often with Ukrainian propaganda, it's like a mirror projection.
0: Yeah, uh, actually, speaking of this, um, if uh, Ukraine is. Uh, female and uh, Ukrainians are working uh, for better PR Uh, in the West, uh, they can and they will take in more females in the army. Because it's like uh, the textbook way how to make American support you more. Uh, Like with Kurds, with uh, Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, Ukrainians will follow this path because they simply will not have enough uh, males sooner or later. And yeah, the the Ukrainian uh, peasant women with sickles, uh, reaping bloody harvests, will kill the the invaders. Bucha was portrayed as a big rape of Ukrainian mm-hmm. uh, of Ukraine and Ukrainian female. And now it's revenge time, right? It's, uh, it's Can you imagine the well uh, the story? She was raped in Bucha and now she's a soldier that killed uh, thousands of Russians. Mm-hmm. I, I can although imagine I think,
1: although, although I think since they fired uh, Denisova, they are kind of walking back from all the rape fanfiction she has well, been spreading. Well, yeah, we uh, should uh,
0: mention that. Uh, Denisova yeah. was... Uh, who, who, sh- who is... Luzmila
1: she... Denisova is, uh, well, normal Russian woman. Uh, I yeah. think uh, from... Her surname is
0: a bit swampy. <laughs> literal phenolic sp- swamps yes uh,
1: i think she was from Arkhangelsk. um uh, then lived in crimea for a while mm. in the 90s and uh, went to ukraine sometime in the 2000s i believe and started working in the government and yeah she was then uh, ombudsman for human rights in ukraine and uh, she was uh, spreading a lot of those um very strange uh, rape fantasies and about horror butcher. stories no not just about butcher just mm-hmm. about everything and um
0: yeah well, just, just recently that Why recently she you... was
1: fired yeah. um it's very strange yeah i mean i mean my guess is that she wasn't fired for lying about rapes she was fired because she uh is not part of the Zelensky team, but she's a Poroshenko holdover. She came uh-huh. to power with Poroshenko. And I guess she is not considered loyal enough by the core of the Zelensky team.
0: And also she's Russian, yeah. Yes. Do you believe in the theory that Poroshenko was an um, American plant and Zelensky is a British plant? Oof, I, I, think,
1: I think they were both influenced very heavily from... A lot, of fa- a lot of factions, yeah.
0: But um, yeah, uh, it's y- just like people in like Itinuk were actual uh, US citizens. And now you don't see much of uh, US yeah, citizens true. in the government. There was also a funny story how Poroshenko tried to escape Ukraine mm-hmm. recently. And uh, at the border, they didn't uh, let him through. And, uh, I think
1: it worked on the third time and he actually came back already, it was reported, oh. I believe. I think, I'm not. 100% sure. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it's uh, internal Ukrainian politics is another question altogether. It's uh, a huge mass um, of different interest groups. They are trying to um, now put Poroshenko in prison for buying coal from the Donetsk People's Republic. Um, my guess is that sooner or later Zelensky will also be considered a traitor of Ukraine and a Russian agent. It's kind of inevitable at this point.
0: Hmm. Timoshenko is... uh, Yulia Timoshenko, there was such a female politician and also prime minister in, uh, I think, under Yushchenko, And she was this uh, caricature of a Ukrainian female Mm -hmm. peasant that uh, they like to... Uh, promote and she was the perfect fit for president uh, well she's not ukrainian she's armenian <laughs> that's a plus uh, uh, she looks like ukrainian that's also good she has this uh, she had this uh, stupid haircut mm-hmm. in the form of uh, polonica i think <laughs> uh, but something went wrong just like uh, in hillary's case do you believe that uh, she might come back or she's too old now after mm, Zelensky is proclaimed a Russian agent. It's possible. She's,
1: uh, I mean, she's, what, around 60 now? Yeah. Um,
0: she has yeah, a recognition. I'm not sure. She's a Maidanist, uh, but I'm not sure I if mean, people uh, like her.
1: I mean, I think she is now a member of Zelensky's party,
0: actually. No, no, no. Uh, Kivshina.
1: In case, yeah, sure, it's possible, I think Timoshenko will remain a player in Ukrainian politics for some time, if only just out of name recognition, but it all uh, depends, of course, on how much of Ukraine will be left after the war.
0: I heard some um, Russian politicians uh, preparing the audience uh, that this this will be a long war, it will take like a few years now. They were not saying that before. I think they uh, are not lying about it. Mm,
1: I'm not sure. It depends on uh, how far they want to go. And that depends on how um, agreement capable Kyiv and the West are. Or more even the West than Kyiv. Because, uh, yeah.
0: The sad part of this war is that uh, Donetsk is uh, being shelled constantly, it's uh, only increasing deaths of uh, uh, Donetsk civilians and not only Donetsk. Meanwhile, the Russian politicians uh, are always uh, threatening to strike uh, the decision-making centers, Mm -hmm. uh, this uh, weird neologism that they use, but they never do it. Uh, So what's the deal here? Why do you think uh, (laughs) they are not targeting actually the these decision making centers
1: I'm not sure I guess it's still uh, this reluctance and humanism and trying to appear as nice as possible and I'm not sure if that is a winning strategy anymore
0: Well I'm not sure if uh, Zelensky's death actually would change anything a military hunt mm-hmm. is possible in the Ukraine if Zelensky is gone
1: But yeah sadly the people of Donetsk uh, still have to suffer for a while longer while their homeland is being liberated. Um, it's I think right now most of the fire is coming from Avdiivka, and they're also using the new uh, Western artillery, which is also very symbolic, if you ask me, that uh, like the Ukrainians get uh, new fancy toys from the West and the best thing they can think of to do with them is just shoot at random schools in Donetsk. I think, like, the last soldier of the Ukrainian army will, like, chain himself to a cannon and uh, with his, uh, (laughs) and leaking, dying of blood loss, uh, with his legs torn off, he will put the last shell in the cannon and defiantly fire at, uh, like, a random bar in Donetsk or something. It's really insane how committed they are to just really killing civilians. I mean, there is some military rationale behind it. They uh, uh, they are baiting uh, the DPR into attack, into a frontal assault on Avdiivka, which would cost really a lot of blood. They are also doing like a psyop on the people in Donetsk, which like, haha, see how the Russians can't defend you, and mm-hmm. we can so we can still kill your children. And it was all pointless, so kind of a de- demoralization op. And, but I don't think it will work out like they think it uh, will. I've also um, heard like a theory that is a bit dark, uh, namely that the Ukrainian officers uh, in like Avdeevka and around there uh making their soldiers basically shoot at civilians at schools. I mean, like the last time Donetsk was shot, like six schools were hit. So it's clear that they were actually targeting schools um that the officers are making their soldiers commit these war crimes so they are too scared to surrender to the russians later Mm.
0: on Uh, do you think the ukraine will adopt the new caliber the nato 155 they will
1: have to they will have to sooner or later because i think the bulgarians uh, said they wouldn't supply more And especially in the early part of the war, I think uh, most of the Ukrainian stockpiles we've actually seen were Bulgarian. Mm -hmm. And I think the only other country that produces uh, 152 millimeter is Poland, who have like one plant, I believe, who uh, make it for export. And I'm not sure if one factory in Poland is enough to supply a fighting army. Actually, I'm pretty sure it's not enough. And they are already, um, if we trust uh, the numbers, uh, we're given uh, only five to 6,000 shells a day, which is nothing on a 1,000-kilometer front line. And especially if you compare it to estimates that the Russians are firing around uh, 100,000 shells a day. And if we look at like historical comparisons, in the first week of the battle for Verdun, the Germans uh, used up 2 million shells. Mm -hmm. So if you look here, uh, 5,000 a day, it's literally nothing. And I think it was uh, Alexander Kotz uh, who said in his uh, stream, Q&A stream, that uh, what he's been told by many soldiers on different parts of the front, that the Ukrainians aren't really firing using their MLRS uh, for rapid volley fire anymore, but only single shots so to uh, save ammunition. So mm-hmm. this all looks like they might be experiencing an actual shortage, snaryatnyi uh, goot, and uh, which sooner or later will um, be very problematic as Ukrainian artillery and Ukrainian artillery is uh, the Ukrainian artillerymen are very well trained. Everyone on the Russian side admits this. Uh, the Ukrainian artillery is of high quality, but if they are out of shells and they're since the artillery is the only uh, thing that the ukrainians really have going for them to stop the Russian advance um the the less capable ukrainian artillery will become the less capable the ukrainians will be of defending so if uh, the supply problem is not solved for the ukrainians by getting enough which i highly doubt is possible enough uh, weapon systems for 155 um, this will become an immense problem for the Ukrainians.
0: To end this episode, uh, some good news. Uh, the road, well, I've heard it on the news, that uh, the road, uh, the shortest uh, road to Crimea is now opened. But naturally, it's full of uh, roadblocks, uh, checkpoints. But uh, theoretically, you can drive to Crimea um. via Mariupol uh, yeah, and Kherson. From Taganrog, right? Taganrog, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I will not try that, and uh, maybe next year, maybe next year. But it's a beautiful road. It's seaside. It uh, mm-hmm. has uh, incredible scenery. So I think it's it's our uh, advice to you, the travel guide. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the new beautiful road via Mariupol. All right, thank you for listening. I think this is it, right? Uh This is more than enough. Uh, Please uh, comment on Twitter and uh, use Discord to discuss uh, our episodes. And maybe uh, you can suggest some topic to us because we've made a lot of episodes uh, based on your suggestions. And they were pretty good ones. See you soon.